This morning we have a, a very special treat. Our speaker today, Brother Jamie Kinman, many of you know him, uh, have known him for a long time. Some of you maybe have just heard that name for the first time a moment ago. Uh, but as we were singing and I was uh, kind of getting ready to hear the Word of God preached from him, I was reflecting on the various times that uh, the, the memories that I have with, with Jamie. When we first met, you might not even remember this, uh, but Jamie and I first met at a Baptist Association gift exchange, and that is as weird as it sounds. <laughs> and um, the reason I bring that up is because you might, maybe you've met Jamie for the first time and you felt like you said something weird or it didn't go okay, but keep pushing because the second time that we met, uh, I began to see Jamie's heart, uh, his pastor's heart. Uh, we were by the bedside of a church member, uh, a mutual acquaintance, and uh, I saw Jamie shepherd that person and their family, and uh, he and I were able to get coffee afterwards and just talk about what the Lord's doing in the city of Mineral Wells and um, began to, to kind of grow a, a, a friendship together, and then uh, fast forward to the time when he and Kasha uh, joined our church and, and Jamie uh, led a, an outreach ministry in Southwest Mineral Wells for the entirety of the summer. We would go out on Wednesday nights in the heat of the day and just pray over the city together. And he stuck with that, uh, even though uh, it was kind of miserable weather-wise. And uh, we talked with people and shared the gospel and prayed for them. And um, and then just several months ago, he began working with our teenagers, and uh, I could see the Lord begin to work in his heart to develop a burden uh, for them as individual people. Because really, folks, sometimes we talk about the next generation as if it's like a demographic, but really they're just people like us. And I saw the Lord begin to work in his heart for our teenagers, for our young people. And now here we are today, and Jamie is about to preach uh, and, and share what God's Word teaches about the next generation, and also we'll, we'll see, I think, his heart for the next generation. So I'm eager to hear from him, and I know every time he opens God's Word, it's going to be gospel-centered, and it's going to be life-giving, and uh, that we're going to be blessed. And so I'm grateful uh, that he's coming to get uh, today to, to share God's word with us. Jamie, if you could come on up and let me pray for you. And, and I would just urge all of us to uh, join in together uh, to ask God's blessing on his future and on the decision that we need to make together as a church in two weeks about the future of our youth ministry. So, Jamie, I, I have to stay by the microphone. Oh, yeah. so sure. I'm going <laughs> to bring you over here and let me pray for you. Father, thank you for Jamie. Uh, thank you for the gifts that you've given him, which we all can see. Uh, thank you for the ministry experience that you've given him, which has not always been uh, fun. But you've walked him through suffering. You've walked him through doubt and discouragement. And you've also allowed him to see fruitful ministry. And you've prepared him, I think, for this moment. And so... Father, I pray that your spirit would just fall on him and uh, that you would clear up any 
doubtful thoughts, any distractions, and allow him to just let loose and give us your word. And uh, Father, we pray that you would work in powerful and surprising ways in the next few minutes. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, brother. All right, open your Bibles if you would. Psalm 127. Psalm 127. We're going to talk this morning about our heritage from the Lord, our heritage from the Lord. And we'll uh, sort of deliver this in three parts. It's not like a normal message uh, sermon for me. Um, So we're going to deliver it in in these three parts. We're going to start with a principle. We're going to talk about a problem. And then we're going to end with some propositions. Principle, problem, propositions. And I'll have you know that I woke up various times throughout the night writing down different forms of alliteration to try to get that one right. Okay? I, had, I had at least three different ones, but I could never quite get that last one right. <clears throat> so we're going to talk this morning about what, what, what does ministry to young people look like? What should it look like? What should be the focus? What should it entail and we're going to just start this morning from, from Psalm 127. Solomon <coughs> wrote this. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. This is the word of the Lord. These are not disconnected thoughts kind of haphazardly slapped together. Sometimes when we read things like Proverbs, things that are written by Solomon, uh, sometimes we feel that way about a Proverbs. It's like, here's a thought, here's a thought, here's a thought, here's a thought, right? And and it doesn't seem like it's going somewhere. But, But this passage is very much talking about one thing. It's moving in one direction. So I'm going to give you a, a, a couple of observations <clears throat> that we need to consider. And then we'll, we'll distill a principle out uh, from there. And it's, it, it has to build on itself. Okay, There are kind of three stages of it building on itself. And then we'll find our principle. Verses 1 and 2, of course, Solomon begins by saying, Unless the Lord builds, unless the Lord watches, things are done in vain. Right? Good place to start. So straight out of the gate, you see this emphasis on what could be called the agency of God. Him at work. His intervention in the process. Not only that, really him initiating the process altogether. He goes on to talk about how the Lord builds the house. Unless the Lord builds the house, and so on. Uh, it, it, 
it, it should be noted <clears throat> that this usage of the word house is not speaking merely to uh, literal physical things, though it is Solomon, so we're probably hearing echoes of, of the temple maybe in that. But more specifically to the biblical concept of the word house, we, we recognize that as referring to a person's household, a family. That makes sense in light of the rest of the text. So here's what you need to know about how I'm going to apply this. This psalm was not written about the church, okay? Obviously. And so even though the precise context is speaking about that biological family, that biological house, I am going to apply it to the church, which in other places is also spoken in terms of a building or a household. So we can, if we can distill that principle and apply it in that way, it can be very helpful to us. Verses 3 through 5, he goes on to, to mention that children are a heritage and a blessing from God. And remember the way that we're applying it, okay? I gave you my, gave you my preface. So let's think of it in these terms. Children are a heritage and a blessing from God to the church. Now, if we can apply it even more, more specifically, let's take it all the way down to the ground. If we can apply it to this church this morning, that means that in this service right here, right now, children or young people, let's say all of the people who are currently pre-adulthood, are a gift to us from God. That means that the intermittent cries of an infant, the impatient fidgeting of a preschooler or an elementary kid, the nervous chatter of a teenager, all of these are, are not interruptions to something better that we're trying to do. All of these things are signs of God's favor, his blessing toward our church. He's bestowed the gift of children, the gift of young people to our congregation. Do you know how many other churches are gathering this morning who would kill, hopefully not kill, <laughs> to, to hear just one baby crying during their service? To see one teenager there that morning. And so we have been gifted a serious blessing. Now, that stuff is fairly easy for us to get, a, get our heads around. No one is going to say, at least openly, that they think that children are not a blessing to the church. But there appears to be something a little bit deeper at work uh, in, in the text. Back to verses 3 <coughs> and 5. They're going to clue us into it. He says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. That's not a word that we use a lot. Verse 5, He, being the Father in this context, He shall not be put to shame when He speaks with His enemies in the gate. This is the part of the text that I did not fully understand until I started preparing for this message. 
we often, uh, I'm going to throw a word at you, sentimentalize, you following me? Scripture, Bible passages, because we individualize it. And so rather than, rather than considering it, considering deeply what it might mean in its context, we just kind of apply it our own way. And so what we might see when we see he shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate, we might see a dad with a lot of kids will just be real proud of him when he talks to people. And that's not untrue, but that's not what the text means. Ancient Hebrew culture, one of the things that we know is we know that court proceedings typically took place near the city gates. Okay? It's okay if you didn't know that. I'm telling you that, so now you know. And so specifically, according to my study Bible, <coughs> male uh, sons right, who defend their aged fathers are kind of in view here. Remember that this is a culture, this is why that's relevant. This is a culture that did not possess like the modern governmental systems that, that we have to care for aging citizens. No social security, no Medicare, none of those social services like that, like we know and appreciate today. So the psalmist is keying us into a reality about his own society and culture. I promise I'm going somewhere with this. And here's essentially what he's telling us. They understood that kids who end up being young people, who end up being teenagers, that kids, young people, were the key to the future well-being of their society. They were not considered a mere novelty. They were considered a necessity. So when we're talking about that word heritage, without getting like off in the weeds about it, um, that word is rendered in other places as inheritance. Now, it, there's a little bit of a different connotation here, it seems like. But essentially, if we're talking about an inheritance from the father, again, don't think in modern terms. Don't think, dad had some money, he left it to me when he passed away, I'm going to buy a new truck. You're going to buy a truck that you're going to drive for 10, 15, 20 years, whatever it might be, and then it's, gonna, it's not going to be any good, right? It's, it's the stuff of, of uh, future scrapyards. <clears throat> in this context, if we can think in those ancient Hebrew terms, we're, we're thinking something more along the lines of property, maybe, right? Land. Things that are meant to guarantee that the family, that the household will be perpetuated for generations to come, assuming that the children are faithful and resolute. So we're talking about a time when... Um, in, in large me measure, a family is going to live on the same piece of property for generations. Like, this is where you live. You don't turn 18 and move away to college and then move across the country. Some, some people left. But, 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 but there's this sort of guarantee in the inheritance of the father that the children are, are, are going to perpetuate that household. And if you think of it in those terms, then that makes the statement, children are a heritage from the Lord, much more powerful in the context of the church especially. <clears throat> so this reality about their society is one that we need to vigorously apply to our church. I, I'll give it to you in, in, in two quick points. Uh, these are just in, in, in my notes for, for uh, clarity. Number one. Young people are essential to our 
the church's future well-being. They are not a novelty. They are a necessity for us. They're not an inconvenience. They're not less than until they turn 18. They are at every stage members of our community for whom we are responsible and on whom the future of the church depends. So young people are essential to our future well-being. Number two, we need to think of them as the next generation of the church. What I mean by that, and, and Jake was kind of hinting at this earlier, a lot, a lot of times when we talk about children and we talk about youth, we're, we're talking about them like they're just affinity groups within the church. It's just for practical purposes that, that, that we're even talking about them that way, so we know which ministry we're supposed to serve in that Sunday. But that's just, that's not really good enough. That doesn't do justice because what we say, the words that we use, it turns out that they mean things. And the way that we use them sometimes affects the way that we think about the people attached to them. Does that make sense? And so, if we can think about about everyone under the age of 18, well, and really, I mean, we could even say everyone under the age of 25 in some sense, but that's a different conversation. Uh, If we can think of them as the next generation and not merely some affinity group that we need to staff volunteers for, then that changes things. Okay, so taking all of that into consideration, um, I'm going to ask a a series of questions. (coughs) And the the main one that I'm trying to get an answer to is this. What should be the mission of our ministry to the youth and children, the next generation, of this church? What should it be? That's, that's kind of the overarching question that we're trying to answer. So let's, let's, let's take a step down and ask some other questions. What is currently our primary desire for them? Because sometimes we can be undiscerning and we don't think critically and deeply about these things. What is our prim- primary desire for them right now? Is it simply uh, we want to teach them good morals so they end up being ethical, su- successful people? That's not a bad thing. Is it to keep kids occupied while we worship and socialize? Is it to give teens somewhere safe to hang out a couple times a week? What are we trying to accomplish? What do we desire to accomplish? And do those things, does that line up with God's primary desire for them? And like I said, none of those things are bad things, but should they be the main thing? That's where we get tripped up a lot, right? That's often what, uh, uh, this is a a separate issue, but that's often what idolatry is, right? It's not that that you put uh, a bad thing as a forefront in your life, but you make a good thing the ultimate thing. And so we need to think about, is this what we're doing here? And it begs the question. We're we're talking about uh, in terms of what is our primary desire? So what's the question we need to ask? The question we need to ask, obviously, is what is God's primary desire for these young people? Blessing. (coughs) Exactly. What is God's primary desire for these young people? And how can we know? 
There are some things that we do know about God's desires for people. And I, I, I don't think I'm painting with too broad of a brush here. But 1 Timothy 2, 4 says that God desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So we know that one. 2 Peter 3, 9, similarly, it says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So we see that one of the first tier desires that the Lord has for all people everywhere at all times is that they come to a knowledge of the truth, that they be saved, meaning that they have a, an opportunity to hear the gospel with clarity and choose whether to accept it or reject it. Are our first tier desires for the young, these young people in line with God's desires? Because, you guys, the gospel is the first tier issue. It is primary and supreme. Okay, so I told you, principle, problem, propositions. So let's scoot over to problem quickly. I, I want to share with you my biggest concern about this ministry. And then we'll talk about how we might approach it to keep it from becoming a, a reality. And just as a caveat, I'm not saying that this is something Indian Creek does. All I'm saying is this is the I've just noticed in, in, in sort of observation through the years, this is the most natural tendency in youth and children's ministry and really in ministry in general. And if you're not kind of actively guarded against it, if you're not actively uh, pursuing a gospel-centered approach to ministry, then, then there's a good chance you're going to succumb to it. And I'm going to try to illustrate it um, by way of a little story. So you've probably seen the signs. New, bigger, better. To us in Minner Wells, that's, that, that now means one thing. Allsup's coming to town, right? <laughs> and they have gone all in. And I, I mean, I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad that they're here. I'm glad that they're here. I bought a burrito the other day. Uh, it cost like $3. I thought it was worth 99 cents, which I think is what they used to be, but I was still happy to eat it. <clears throat> so... Um, that they've, they have built several of them already. And, and the first one that they started to build is the one closest to our neighborhood. Um, the, it, it's on the edge of the southeast part of town, kind of going south out of town on, on 281. And um, w when I noticed that that started to happen, this field was becoming an allsups. It was really interesting. So when I would get, get up first thing in the morning and get out of the house, I would just kind of cruise by there in the car because I'm old and I wanted to watch the progress unfold, okay? Uh, I'm, yeah, I'm not that old, but <clears throat> I feel it. So one morning, I was doing that, early in the construction process. Uh, and if, if you're familiar with that area, you know that there is a, uh, another store right to the north of that, right across 379, okay? A Tommy. It's a small, it's an old sort of little Tommy's uh, store. And as I was passing through there one morning, again, early in the construction process, <coughs> I, uh, I, I think I needed gas in the car, something like that. So I decided to, to pull in to that Tommy's and get gas. And I noticed something that I found really interesting. 
I saw a suspiciously large concentration of vehicles with construction equipment in tow. They're filling up on fuel. This is at, this is at the Tommy's. Filling up on fuel, buying breakfast, buying coffee, just getting ready for the day, whatever the task was at hand. And as I thought about what I was seeing, I, I'm kind of slow. So I'm driving away, and I'm starting to put two and two together, and I'm thinking, it seems like what's going on is these people are <clears throat> these people are filling up at the old little Tommy's store to go right across the street and to work on building the new, bigger, better thing that in the long run might just put Tommy's out of business. Can't say for sure, but that seems like what was going on. So if we could kind of put it succinctly, that morning I saw people borrowing, borrowing from the old little in order to build for themselves the new, bigger, and better that is ultimately going to lead to their demise. You see that dynamic? See how that's a strange thing to behold? And, and as soon as I saw it, I started write, typing it into my phone. And I was like, this is a sermon illustration, but I don't know what it's about yet. And there was like a several months gap in between when I was able to use it. But that dynamic represents the deep concern that I have about the way that youth and children's ministry can end up operating. Let me try to explain it. My concern is that we'll end up spending our primary efforts on things like, you know, using the Bible and the idea of God to give people a really sound understanding of morality. Not a bad thing. But it's not a primary thing. And we might do that for a number of reasons. Uh, so that they don't embarrass us in public. They end up getting the right job when they grow up. They live in a good neighborhood. They become financially independent. They have a really tidy Facebook profile. Whatever it may be. My concern is that we will set parents up to treat the church like the old Tommies. This is all we got right now. It's not much, but you can fuel up here, and then you can leverage what you get to build something new, bigger, and better for yourself down the road. Kind of use this as your infrastructure and then design for yourself whatever you want your life to look like based on what you got here. We can, we can set people up to borrow from the old little Christian thing, religion thing, church thing in order to build for uh, our kids, their kids, the new, bigger, and better thing that is down the road for them. With little thought given to their condition, uh, the condition of their hearts before the Lord and their eternal destiny. We start putting secondary things in the primary box. If you think that's a crazy concern, you're like, okay, I see why you haven't used that sermon illustration yet. Because it doesn't make any sense. Let me, let, me, let me show you that this is a real thing. This is something that has happened and can happen. Um, if you remember, Jesus had a lot of things to say about the Pharisees. It's not a perfect one-for-one -one comparison, but it's similar, and I think it will be helpful. <coughs> Over in Matthew 23, and you don't have to turn there. Um, we're going to put it on the screen. By we, I mean Stephen. 
Matthew 23, 25 through 28 says this. Jesus is pronouncing some woes. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also are outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. It's kind of hard to find good information on Pharisees. Um, That might be... So, okay. So let me say it like this. The best information that I've found, or at least it might not be the best, but the information I'm going to use... Uh, is what I is what I got from uh, from one of my professors from seminary, and the way that he described it was kind of like this: Pharisees weren't really like noblemen, as far as they weren't a ruling class of Jews at the time of Jesus. Um, but the way that he explained it is that um, at Jesus's time, at least, there wasn't even really a formalized training. There would be later, but at Jesus's time, there wasn't necessarily a formalized training to become a, a Pharisee. It was more informal. And, and the way that he explained it was that Pharisees were like middle class, upper middle class. They were upstanding, law-abiding, moral, religious men who contributed positively to their society. And they did know the scriptures very well. But the problem, the problem was not that they did not know them. It was that they misunderstood and misapplied the scriptures. Jesus says as much. John 8, 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and yet it is they that bear witness about me. And so what's going on is all of this knowledge that they had gained from the scriptures, those sacred books that were meant to (coughs) serve to stir up faith in God and cause them to live a life of radical, heartfelt obedience to lead them to Jesus himself. They actually uh, used that and it had been leveraged by them to build themselves a better opportunity in this life. So they knew God's word. They followed it outwardly in a way that made them look good in their culture but they never experienced a heart-level transformation that was offered to them by God through Jesus Christ. So they used their scriptural knowledge and their morality to strategically position themselves so that man was the source of their blessing at the expense of receiving a true blessing from God. One more quick example. The rich young man, if you remember, Interestingly, right before that, uh, in Mark 10, uh, right before the, 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 the actual story of the rich young man starts to take place, um, that's that famous place where Jesus says, let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God, right? It's these, it's these people, these young people who are coming to Christ in complete dependence, seeking to offer him nothing but merely to receive from him by grace, they came to him empty-handed, say, we don't have anything to offer. We're just coming because you said come. Now, the rich young man in Mark 10, 17 through 22. <clears throat> and as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. 
And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. And then comes one of the most tragic phrases in all of Scripture. The young, the, the young man, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. There's a way of living in which people become good, moral, successful people that contribute positively to society. But their hearts do not treasure Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Guys, the church is not merely a conglomeration of programs meant to churn, churn out upstanding law-abiding citizens. The church is God's means on earth to bring about worship from all peoples everywhere for the sake of his great name. I'm not, don't hear me setting up a dichotomy between we either make moral upstanding citizens or we make people who love Jesus. That's not what I'm, that's not what I'm doing. But I'm saying, what are we focusing on? What do we want for the lives of our youth and children? Do we want to equip them for a non-committal, nominal Christianity so long as they learn how to be successful and basically moral? Or do we want them to think... Uh, do we want them to love Jesus with their whole hearts and are willing to follow him to the ends of the earth no matter what anybody else thinks? Do we want to teach them that it's normal to desire to gain the whole world and lose your soul? Or do we want to teach them to treasure Christ first and then let him sort the rest out? I think that the mission of our ministry to the next generation ought to be something like this. I have it written down. <clears throat> Striving to see every single one of these young people become fully formed followers of Jesus Christ who are passionate about knowing him and making him known wherever they go and whatever they do. Aiming for anything less than that simply will not do. And here's why. Because they are the next generation of the church. When we're dead and gone, it will be them entrusted to carry the mission of God forward. It will be them entrusted to proclaim and defend the gospel to a lost and dying world. It will be them entrusted to reach the nations for the sake of Christ if the Lord tarries. And it will be them. They are the next generation of the church. They already are that. Now, yes, there are, there are tons of people who are not yet within the community of Christ whom the Lord delights in saving. He will delight in bringing them in. But we know, we know what these young people are. And if it is them, if they are the next generation of the church, then they have been entrusted to us. And that's a weighty responsibility. And we got to do something right with it. So how will we steward this heritage from the Lord that we have been granted? I gave you a principle. I gave you a problem. <clears throat> and I want to give you some propositions. These are pretty undetailed. This is like 30,000 foot view. This is just kind of 
setting our minds in this direction. Four propositions for children's ministry based on Psalm 127. Number one, trust the Lord. This seems simple enough, right? Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. I, I, I believe firmly that if everything we want to accomplish in our youth and children's ministry can be accomplished by us without God's intervention, then we're betraying the spirit of Psalm 127 and really the spirit of the Great Commission in general. What I mean is we, we cannot and should not approach this or any ministry with sheer pragmatism but in radical dependence upon the Lord. We cannot make people Christians. You realize that? We cannot do that. That's like the essence of, of, the, of the truth of the gospel is that God must intervene. He must. And that's related to the next one. So one, trust the Lord. Two, pray our faces off. We don't trust the Lord in a general or fatalistic way. We don't trust the Lord like people from other religions or other parts of the globe uh, believe in fate, right? Things are just going to turn out the way they're going to turn out. We're not deists that believe that, that there was a God who set the universe in motion and then just took his hands off. We're Christians. We're called by the name of Christ. He, uh, uh, Paul tells us that we, by the Spirit, cry out, Abba, Father. A regular part of the ministry has to be, it ought to be, begging the Lord to move in the hearts of the young people, causing them to be passionate, fully formed disciples of Christ at the earliest possible age, which is in keeping with God's general desire for all people. Trust the Lord. Pray our faces off. Number three, preach the gospel. <clears throat> no person is saved apart from the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. They're just not. This, this is God's chosen means by which people come to saving faith. You have to hear. How will they hear if there's no one preaching? And that might seem like a, like a duh thing to say, but it's so easy to take it for granted that, that, that they're, they're going to hear just because they're at church. Conversion by osmosis. We're preaching the gospel in this room, so surely it's making its way into the nursery somehow. What a waste if a child spends years in the church only learning how to keep the outside of the cup looking squeaky clean. Learning how to whitewash a tomb instead of clearing out those dead men's bones to make room for that new heart that beats for the glory of, of the name of Jesus Christ. So we want to trust the Lord. We want to pray our faces off. We want to preach the gospel over and over and over again. And we need to equip parents and adults for this task. Guys, raising up the next generation of passionate Christ followers is not something you can hire out to one guy. Listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to strive to give you my best every day, assuming, <laughs> assuming that I get the opportunity to do so. But there are 168 hours in a week. How much of that do we get to spend with your kids compared to how much you get to spend with your kids? Parents are the primary disciplers of their children. They just are, for good or for ill. 
by, by sheer volume of time. But also, raising up the next generation of passionate Christ followers is a community effort. And it's the job of the entire church to do so. And it's the job of church leaders to help equip the community and the home toward that end. Not only equip, but empower and deploy to that end. I wish we had time to to talk about the spiritual nature of the household of faith and the fact that you can be a spiritual father or mother to a child who does not biologically belong to you. In fact, that is the expectation of a disciple-making church. That you, that you grab you grab someone, younger or older, whatever, than you, and you walk with them through life, and you apply the gospel to, to areas of their life, and they apply to areas of yours, and you encourage them, and you, and you exhort them, and you rebuke them when necessary. That, guys, that's what the church is anyways. So it has to be that to the, the next generation. So trust the Lord, pray our faces off, preach the gospel, equip parents and adults. As I close out here, I'll, I'll just say we, we, we have to commit on purpose as a church. Um, we, we need to commit to one another to the task of giving ourselves away to the next generation as we seek to serve Jesus faithfully and entrust the results to him. And so we, we have a, a choice before us, a choice of, of emphasis. We can spend all of our efforts on trying to fuel our kids up for whatever is new, bigger, and better in their future, apart from the Lord or we can spend all of our effort on firmly planting the seeds of the gospel of grace into the soil of their souls while begging the spirit of the living God to move in power over their lives, causing them to live this life of devotion to their Savior and Master, the Lord Jesus Christ, come what may. That's what's going to last. That's what's going to serve them in those dark times, in those difficult days. And and we can trust him. We can trust him to work out the finer details of their lives in the process. So what if, what if we, and, and I'm not saying that we're not, but even more so, what if we were a church that sought primarily to equip our young people to delight in their relationship with God so much so that the overflow is that they become leaders within our congregation and their communities, fearless evangelists and missionaries, godly and devoted leaders in the ministry and in the marketplace who are generous and unashamed of the gospel. What if we sought primarily to equip them to that end first? What if that's what we were shooting for? The good news is that I I think that's what God wants for us too based on his word, based on what we know about his character. So we, we, we know this about God. We know that he is incredibly 
gracious and incredibly generous. And so I, I hope that I hope that you'll join me in seeking this end for our church, especially for these precious members of the next generation. Let me pray for us. Lord God, um, who, who is sufficient for, for such things? Uh, who, who's sufficient to, to stand before godly saints, curious unbelievers, and, and try to expound on the word at all? Um, not me. Um, but Lord, we, we trust you. We, we believe that your spirit is at work in our midst. And God, I just pray for you to help, for you to help us, for you to help me, Lord, to love the next generation really well, Lord, and to seek to give ourselves away to them in, in a fresh way, Lord, and in a radical way for the good of your church and your people that more and more and more peoples around the earth, around the globe, and in our own backyard might come to know and experience the goodness of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray.